0: The following lecture was delivered at the 12th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Bella Miller will now present her lecture, Witness to History. As you know, my name is Bella Miller. I was born in eastern Poland, in Borislav. My town in Poland was known for their petroleum and they needed a lot of people to work there. The war I was a very young girl when the war started. But I'll just tell you, we lived in a very nice house and we lived in like a two, two family home. My aunt and uncle lived on one side and we lived on the other side. My father, my mother, my father, my brother, older brother, and I. And life was very good. My, had, my father owned a beautiful clothing store and because of the petroleum, he owned also part of the petroleum the shares of mine, so life was very good. Unfortunately, that came quickly to an end because the war started in 1939 and I was just a very little girl. I was about seven years old at that time. Uh, the Germans invaded Poland, and they came in. However, they stayed only for a little while with us in the first time. When the Germans came, they right away took my father, and they asked him to open this store, and they collected they came with a truck and collected whatever they wanted, they couldn't care less, but they, he let, they, after they emptied practically half of the store, they let him go. The people, when the Germans came, first of all, couldn't go to school, and everything was prohibited f- for the Jews. But the Germans stayed only a short time, just maybe a couple weeks, because what happened, Hitler and Stalin made a pact and they've divided Poland. When the Germans left, the Russians came. My father was considered a capitalist, and we never knew when the Russians are going to send us to Siberia, because they used to come, the secret police used to come at random, and they used to take people and send them to Siberia. But since they uh, confiscated his store, they also made the people go to work and work in the petroleum industry. But at that time, during the Russian time, I was still able to go to school. This German stayed for a little while. I mean, because what happened, Hitler double-crossed Stalin and Hitler invaded Stalingrad. And at that point, the the Germans left uh, again and the Russians stayed with us for a little longer. Finally, the Russians left and the Germans came back. When the Germans came back, they started with pogrom. Our hometown was not a large town, but very, of course, with petroleum, was a very important area there was about 30% of Jews and the rest were Poles and also Ukrainian peasants there. When the Germans finally came back, they made a Ukrainian police. Somehow the Ukrainians hated the Jews as much as the Germans. I don't know why, because they used to first, used to come to us and deliver grocery, delivered milk and things like that from the villages. And, uh, we, they immediately started with pogroms. What pogrom is, they used to, when people used to walk on the street, Jewish people, they recognized, they knew who were the Jewish people. They would kick, kick him and beat him. Some were even taken away and transported out of Borislav. We have never seen and heard from them again. What happened is the pogroms would last a day or two and then they would be quiet. And at that time, the Germans used to take the people and send them to work to workforce. But my, they used to go in the morning and they used to march in the, back home. When they they used to they established a Jewish Judenrat, which means a Jewish a Jewish people who is to run. They used to have to supply them with workers every day, and the Judenrat had to do it. And then after a couple of days of pogrom, there was another pogrom and a third pogrom. And my parents realized that with those pogroms, a lot of people were killed, a lot of people were lost, a lot of people were transported away, and they realized that eventually they're going to get us. So we have to find a hiding place. In our building, we lived in a large building with my aunt and uncle on one side and we on the other there was a big cellar because my uncle used to have a large bar. So in the cellar he kept all kinds of liquors and whiskey and what have you. And they built a hiding place. They divided the cellar and they made a hiding place. They put shelves on the cellar and they made a small opening that in case we heard of a pogrom, we could immediately slide in into the cellar and stay there. Now, Many times the Germans and Ukrainians would come around and they would attack people and try to get into your house. We had a big gate, but we left it open because we knew that if they're going to come, they're going to break the gates and they're going to come in. Sure enough, one day they, we found out there was a pogrom and we hid in the cellar. The, Ukrainians and the Germans came in, and they might come with dogs, and dogs would certainly smell people coming in. But we were told, at least my parents were told, and my uncle, if you put black pepper around uh, around the cellar, the dogs would not be able to smell you, that there are people in. So anyway, so that's what happened, and sure enough, the Ukrainians came, and the Germans came and they came down to the cellar looking for Jews. But they saw liquor and they were very involved with stealing the liquor or taking it away. My heart was in the cell, in the hiding, beating so hard that I expected that for sure they are going to hear why I'm hidden. That they will know exactly there's somebody. But needless to say, they were more interested in liquor and they took the liquor and they left. That was going on for a while. And there was another pogrom when my uncle was caught, and we never heard from him. My parents realized that this is going to go on for a long time, and you never know when they're going to get us. So they found a hiding place at a gentle young lady. And she already had a lot of people there hidden. She was a very good, kind woman, and she took us in. In the meantime, before we got in, the German decided to make a ghetto. The ghetto was really not covered with barbed wire, but there was one section of the town where we were told to go and live. And my aunt and uh, my, my uncle was gone by end, and my cousins came to live with us in that apartment in the ghetto you were not allowed to leave the ghetto unless you had a certain paper that you went to work or something, otherwise you were not allowed to leave the ghetto. As I said, my parents realized that they're eventually going to catch us, either they'll kill us or they'll send us out to some concentration camp, and they have to find a place for us to hide. How my parents found those places to hide is beyond my understanding because I was too young but anyway, this young woman took us in and she said she would keep us, and she already had additional people. In her place, she had a big, those nice homes had beautiful ovens. There were tile ovens. There was something like four by five, and there was an opening where you put your coal and your wood, and there was a big plate of metal in case sparks come out not to catch the floor on fire. Underneath, they built a tunnel and put two shelves. You couldn't stand there, but you could squeeze on a few steps down, and you stayed in that tunnel when she would get guests to come to her house. You had to be absolutely quiet, and she had about 12 to 14 people in her house. She used to have to go shop for food, and she was normally, people knew she was the only one person there, Her parents helped the shop, but still, they started buying an awful lot of food, and there was talk, apparently, she said, that somebody realized that she must be hiding Jewish people. So she got scared, and she told us to leave the hiding place that we have to leave. My parents found another place, and I don't know how. My brother was older, so they sent him and me at night during the night to walk to the other hiding place. My brother knew where to go, and we walked through the night, and then my parents came. When they came to that place, the man obviously got a lot of money for taking us in. We were there a very short time, because he said, you know, my neighbor must have heard something or seen something, and he made us leave. Believe it or not, my parents found another place. And believe me, they had no cell phones. They don't have smartphones. I don't know how they got through. But my my brother took me again by the hand. He was about 10 years older than I was. Took me by the hand, and we walked through the night through fields, and we went to the hiding place. There was a couple, a Ukrainian couple, whose daughter was getting married at that day. So they put us in a shed and locked the shed, and we stayed all day long in that shed. At night, finally, when the wedding was over and her children left, they took us out and put us in the barn and gave us something to eat and a pail for excrement and what have you. And we stayed there for quite a while. My brother used to be sent out about every other week or so to go. And I don't know where my parents had hidden money. They were well well off, so they had, I guess, money hidden. I don't know whether it was by people or whether it was underground. And he used to go like that every two weeks or so and bring some money and pay them for keeping us. That lasted for a while, and one night when my brother left, he never came back. And we realized that he was caught, we didn't know what happened, and they found out that he was caught by the Ukrainian police, and they took him to work in the police station. It seems that he, my brother, surprisingly, I know how he knew it, but he was very capable, and they made him fix different things, and also clean the cells in the police station and he worked for the while there. In the meantime, money was not coming in, and these people were looking for money, and they, one night, they denounced us, and the Ukrainian police came and took us out. And mean, while we were in the hiding, the ghetto was liquidated. However, they could not get rid of all the people they had what was known as koshare. Koshare were the end of the town. There were barracks where usually the soldiers used to train and used to live. They took out the soldiers. There were barracks, and they put barbed wire around it. And some people from the ghetto were deported to different concentration camps, but some were kept for work. Why I'm telling you that is because when they caught finally, we, they caught us, and they took us to the police station. There were also many, many people that were caught or found someplace, and they were also at the police station. And I remember there was winter, it was very cold, and I remember, and obviously there was no food or no water or anything, and I remember there were little openings in the, in the you know, in police station in the, in the cell, and somebody had a little stick and would bring a little snow so we could suck on a little snow. We stayed there for a while, and some people were taken out, and we found out later that they just took them in the forest and they shot them. But some people, they kept, and miraculously, my parents and I, we survived, and they sent us to the barracks, the Koshare. Children were really not supposed to be in Koshare, but there were few children left, and we used to hide on the top of the barracks, usually. So when the parents, and my brother at that point was also sent to Koshare, and he used to go work in the police, and they were working for the petroleum industry, and we used to go, as kids, we used to hide during the day until my parents would march back. My parents, well, all the other people with them would march back and they used to always count how many people left. They called it sail appell and how many people would come back. One day when they were counting the people, there were two people short, three people short. And they say, you know what happens when we find, find them, Nobody is allowed to escape If we find them, we are going to take care of them. At that time, the three people uh, didn't come back, and they sent the Ukrainian police to look for them. It took them two days, and they found the people. Happened to be two of them I knew because they were our next-door neighbors. There was Mr. Haberman and his young son and another third person. They brought them into the... Koshari, they put him in front, in the center of the the center there, and they shot him. We were as kids hidden up on top, and I saw him being shot. My neighbor, his son, and a third person, they were shot. When the people marched back to the Koshari, they pointed out to them, this is what's going to happen to you when you are going to escape. We will always find you, and we will take care of you. Life went on for a while in the koshare. My parents went to work, and there was one of a sudden, one very early morning, early, about five or so in the morning, the koshare was surrounded. My parents and a few other f- people found a place to hide in the koshare. There was a like a potato bin, and we slid down, and we stayed there. While they were taking people out from the koshare. Finally, at night, when they emptied the koshare, it was very quiet, and we came back. We came out, you could see that there was nobody there, you were able to go out. We walked out, the koshare was surrounded by barbed wire, but they were not electrocuted. So, and somebody had the cutters, they cut the wire and we, you know, we had to spread out and we walked to the forest. Borislav Boris had large forests and apparently people knew that there were bunkers and hiding places in the forest. So we walked through the night to the forest and somebody knew where the bunker was and they found it. Now I'll tell you how the bunker was built. The bunker, if you would have gone to the forest and you would have walked through, you wouldn't know that there's anything underneath because they were brought in twigs, some leaves, trees, and things. The opening was not bigger than half of this. They built a bunker underneath. They shored it up with wood from the forest. They made like bunk beds. and. We came there. There were already some people in one of the bunkers. By the way, the bunkers were always built not far from the stream because you're in a bunker, you have to have water so we stayed there and during the day, we slept and at night, the women used to cook some food. They used to have those little metal stoves with a pipe going out, and during the night, nobody you know unless hunters would come, they felt that they were able to cook and prepare food. And also some of the people would go out and they would bring water and obviously take the excrement out and this is how we lived for quite a while. But you needed food too. Nothing grows in the forest except trees. And there was always one person designated that once a week they would go and they would try to find, they knew where to go and everybody gave them money and they would go and buy food. So it lasted for quite a while and we were in the forest during the day. You slept on the ground at night. They would open the lid so you could get some little fresh air and the women would cook and we would get our food. And the person one night went out but... He never came back. So we realized that he must have been caught, and if he's going to be tortured, he is going to give up our place, and we will all be caught and taken back, and whatever, whether they will shoot us or whatever. So we decided to walk through the forest. There were quite a few people in that bunker, and apparently some others knew other bunkers where they were in the forest. So we walked through the night in the forest, and another bunker was found. But they couldn't take anybody but the women and children. I was the only one child there. They took us, but they couldn't take the men because there was not enough room in the bunker. So there was a fallen tree, a gigantic fallen tree, and the men just lifted the branches, and they slept and stayed under the tree. In the morning, I was sent to go with the food, to bring to the men. And I want you to know, I wouldn't dare to go through the forest now. I would be scared stiff. But those days, I was so proud that I am able to do something and help. And I was just a kid, and I walked. It must have been half a mile. There was a different ditch that I knew had to cross. And I used to bring food to to my father my brother and the other few men that were hidden there. That went for a while, but they realized, hey, right now it is already... Warm and it's all right, but the men cannot stay there because what is going to happen? You know, winter time they cannot stay on the ground like above the ground like that. So they decided to build another bunker, and other men came down. And during the day they had to do, and they were hoping that there would be nobody. That if a hunter comes, you would obviously he would see it, but it was deep in the forest. So somehow they were able to be, took quite a while and they built another bunker. And finally we were able to move to that bunker. That did not last very long. Somebody must have seen what was happening and where they built it. And one morning, early in the morning, the Germans came with rifles drawn and with uh, Ukrainian police and started yelling, we know you are Jews down there, rouse, rouse, rouse. And we opened the lid, there was just a very small lid and we crawled out. And then they certainly wouldn't go to check if anybody was left there. So as they moved us off, they took a grenade and threw in the bunker and the bunker exploded. So if anybody stayed, they felt they're not going to survive. They took us back to the, kosha- to the koshare, because they knew that after a while we are going to be either deported and sometimes they needed people to work. Kids would hide, and eventually we are going to be deported to a concentration camp or someplace. That lasted for a little while. We were we were marched to the koshare again and my parents and my brother were put to work again. So you used to go at night, and a few kids that were left from the originals, from different bunkers, we used to hide still. However, some people had a short wave radio, and they knew that the Russians were coming at that point. And you could hear from further away, you could hear, you know, sometimes the rumbling of gunfire and things like that so you knew that uh, hopefully that we'll be liberated at, at some point. What well, there was not to be, because another morning, early in the morning, the koshare were surrounded. This time we had nowhere to hide, and we all were taken and marched to the train station. And you can imagine through so your town where you live, you sp- see people that you know because Borislav was not such a big town, and you see, and they're marching you with gun drawn like you're a criminal or something, and they marched us to the train station. I didn't know where we were going or what, but they had cattle cars there, and they put us in the cattle cars, and they locked, they sealed the doors, and the train moved on, and they had soldiers sitting above with guns there, so in case you could break out or something, there was not to be. The train was moving that way. We moved through Hungary and through Vienna back to Poland, to Auschwitz. Two weeks took the trip. They took us out in July of something, and we came arrived in Auschwitz in August towards the end in the trip, a couple of fellows thought, you know, we try to escape. Let's try to escape. And when we arrived in Vienna, I didn't know whether it was Vienna or you know, I was too young for, you know, but anyway, we sat on all, we were lying on the floor. We had just very little wizards at that point. We didn't have too many packages. We had just a few extra clothing. That was it. And they in the floor of the train, when the train would stop somebody for the night, somehow they dug a hole and took out a board and, or two boards, and they escaped. They moved through it. However, we heard shots, and we never knew whether they were killed or because there were always soldiers watching. So I, we never knew if the two fellows made it or if they were killed. Next morning, they opened the gates of the uh, cattle car and they came with a whip and randomly just started beating people. And they said, "How come you did not notify us that somebody is trying to escape?" Anyway, the train moved further on, and we arrived in Auschwitz. When we arrived in Auschwitz, I was still with my father, my mother, and my brother, and all the other people were sitting in the car and they opened the door and they took inmates from Auschwitz and they told them to take everybody out. And immediately they emptied the, while the inmates came in, one of them told my mother, if they ask you about your child's, for me, if you ask you about her age, make sure that she is older. I was not quite 12 at that time, but I was very tall for my age. And she said, make her older. My mother didn't know what he meant or how, but she took his advice. They chased everybody out, whatever belongings you had, you left it in the train, and you moved out from the train, and they separated men from women. I didn't even have time to say goodbye to my father or brother. We were completely separated, and I never saw them again. Anyway, and they put us in rows they called it sail Appel, where they watch you. There was the famous Dr. Joseph Mengele, the Dr. Des, and he did the selection. When it came to me, he looked at me and he said, Wie Art bist du? My mother spoke German and she said, 15. He looked at me. I don't think he believed that I was 15, but he sent me with my mother to one side. He sent the other people, my, I know there was my aunt, was my younger cousin whose husband was already killed at that point, they sent them to another side. But at that point, nobody knew which side was better. When the selection finished, they took us in Auschwitz. You, some of you must have seen by Fry. the big signs there. We walked into Auschwitz and they took us to one of those big barracks, and there were people were shaving scissors and things, and they shaved, made us this rope completely, and they shaved our heads. Every every woman had uh, her head shaved. And they put us into the shower, they said. There was cold water coming, there was no soap, no towels, nothing, just water dripped on us and they brought some clothes back and threw them on the ground, and whatever you caught, that was your clothing that you had. They took us in Auschwitz, Birkenau, to Lager B. Lager B was more or less a transit Lager, where they used to bring people from other areas, from other camps, and then they used to send them to other camps. We were there for every morning. They used to have They used to count you in the morning, sometimes during the day and also at night. You couldn't escape, because the barbed wire, wires were electrocuted. Nobody was going to touch it. But anyway, they made life even more miserable, so that five in the morning, rain, shine, whatever, you used to stand outside, and finally they would count and count you, and you go back to the barracks. We would stay, that went for a while. I got very sick, and they had a barrack for sick people. Obviously, when I got to that barrack, there were no really doctors or anything. There were only kapos. There were the heads of the barrack. And they put me in a room. The barrack was divided in two. The one very sick and the less, the ones that could go to work from there. I was with the very sick, and I stayed in that barrack. My mother found out she was... Extraordinary, enterprising, I don't know how she did it. She found out she knew which barrack I was and she used to come to the barrack at night when she used to go to Latrine. So she went and she used to call my name and I used to go to the wall and she knew that I was still there. That went on for a while, there were no doctors, but somebody told me that I had scarlet fever apparently. I guess some people knew, you know, from the couples what I had. It was in that barrack for a while and I guess there was going to come a selection for the gas chambers. And the cop was, I don't know, they had some mercy on me, and liked me, and they said, you are going to go back to your barrack where your mother is. And my mother was still there. When I got to the barrack back, I was the only one let out. My mother was already tattooed, but I, didn't have a tattoo because I was taken after a few days, and they put a tattoo on me, and the woman that was in the barrack put the tattoo. We were no more names. There was no name. If they wanted something, you were a number, and I will never forget that number, 824-977, that will live with me forever. We were in that barrack. One morning, You know, they brought additional people. My aunt came. Surprising from another part, but they were short-lived because they took them, for they kept them there for a couple of days, and then they sent some of the people out. And I found out later on that my end was taken. They took them in Poland to Gdańsk, where the ocean is, and they shut them and just dropped them in the ocean. Anyway, we stayed in that barrack B, and they say, hey, they have to move. Oh, and one day, you heard, I heard that there were like maybe 10 barracks on each side or 50. I don't remember how many. And there was a big kitchen at the end. And that's where you used to prepare. B- believe me, the food was, we were very hungry. What you used to get in the morning was a piece of square like this, bread about this high. And some, what they call tea or coffee. You had only a bowl and a cup, metal bowl, metal cup. At night, they what they called soup that they would give you. It must have been made from wheat, something. That's all. And you would always starve to death. Anyway, they took us out from Lager B and sent us to another. That was also in Birkenau. And they sent us to Lager K. What they made us do there is work. There were large rocks in the field. And they make us lock those rocks from one area to another. And then and the back and forth, just to make life miserable. That went on for a while, and then decided to move us to another lager, and there was Lager C. That was called the Weberi. Weberai is something like weaving. They used to bring pieces of, just junk of fabrics and rubber, and the rubber was completely glued on. You used to have the table, let's say like this desk, only much longer because the barrack was longer. It was a big table and on both sides there were seats and by each seat there was a nail in the table. What you needed, you used to get that, the fabric, cut it, they had scissors, you used to cut it in strips and you had to divide the rubber and, divide, and cut it in strip and you had to make braids and they told you that you had to make 24 meters of braid a day, which was almost humanly impossible because the, fa- the rubber was so tough to, to separate and to cut, but we had to do it, and we had, after a while, you had blisters. They were bigger than your fingers, but you still had to do it. And at the end of the day, when you finished the braid, you had to put a piece of paper with your number. That was your name and you put it in a pile. Somebody told us that they used the braids for the soldiers when they went to Stalingrad in the different part when they invaded Russia to wrap their feet with it because of the cold in Russia. I don't know how true that was, but that's what the story was there. We worked there for quite a while and sometimes they came, the Germans, with a couple, and they would take a braid off a table and try to break it. If it broke, you got a beating. Luckily, when they came to mine, it didn't break, but he smacked me anyway and continued. And my mother, because of the hunger, was very sick. As a matter of fact, we were there during Rosh Hashanah in Yer Believe me, we didn't know what day it was, but the Germans knew. And they say, oh, the Jews fest in Yom Kippur. They don't have to get any food today. So there was one day you were always starved, you lost weight, you were like a skeleton, but that day you didn't get any food at all. Anyway, that went on, but there were rumblings also, and apparently the Russians were coming closer to Auschwitz. They apparently, we found out later, they had to break up the crematoriums and they started people marching out of Auschwitz. In the middle, my mother, because of hunger, her legs were swollen. I have never seen anything like this. They called it elephantitis. She could hardly move. So she went, and I went with her to one of those sick barracks. It was probably for selection or whatever they were going, and they put us there. They didn't want to take me first, but I pleaded, and the woman, was the couple, was kind, and she let me stay with my mother. We stayed there for a while because my mother couldn't move. We didn't know when the selection was coming, but in the meantime, the Germans started marching people out, and the ovens were already stopped working at that point. On January 28, 1945, and I remember lying on one of those bunks, there were about eight or 10 people lying on them. Somebody came and they said that the the Germans left and that the Russians are coming. And the Russians came to camp, so we were, so to speak, liberated. The Russians, when they came, they didn't have, it was winter time and they didn't have much food. So they gave us potatoes, and they gave us some bread. And it was in a way lucky, because many people in other camps, I have 10 minutes? Oh, (laughs) Other people, you know, in other camps, you know, American came and liberated them, and they gave them food. And of course, when you're not used to eating food, you perish. Anyway, they moved us to the headquarters, to the Auschwitz where they had other prisoners, the buildings. We stayed there for a while. And then they moved us to Silesia, that's in Poland, Katowice, and they sent us to Caritas. Caritas where, were the, where the sisters were supposed to be, Sisters of Mercy. There were nobody there, but they took my mother and there were some 20 other children that were saved. And, They put us on a truck and moved us to Katowice. We were in Katowice for a while, but there was hunger. There was nobody to really feed us. There was a kitchen someplace, and occasionally we would get some food. But under our bed there in Katowice, we found some toys. We took the toys to a market. We sold the toys, and we bought bread. And that went on for a little while. My mother was so enterprising, I don't know how she wanted to find if My father survived. My brother, we didn't know. The war wasn't quite over at that time. And there were Jewish community, and they found out that there's another town, that somebody from our hometown is there. And the woman was living in Hozhov, which is also in the same area, and that she is working for a Jewish organization that they opened. And she's working in the kitchen. And my mother said, Let's go there. And we went there. You see, when I was liberated, the Poles were also on, not only the Russian, and they gave us Red Cross cards. With that card, you could travel for free any place that we were. We didn't have any clothing, only what was on our back. And we traveled to, uh, to Hozhov. Hozhov was the lady, Mrs. Zucker, who was a friend of. My family's, actually, we knew her from Borislav. And she says, you can come and live with me. Because what happened, the Germans took over apartments where the Jews were. Now the Germans escaped from there, and she got one of the apartments, we stayed with her for a while. My mother always believed in education, and she sent me right away to school, and they took me in school there. We stayed there for a while, but don't forget that Poland and even Germany was divided by zones. There was a Russian zone, you, there was an English zone, there was an American zone, and a French zone. My mother said, let's go to an American zone, life will be better. And one night, we decided to just go. We got to the train, we had the pass, and we went to Munich. Munich had a camp called Funkacerne. And they took us off, and there was an an, under American auspices at that point. So you had a little food, and there were giant barracks, and you had each one got a bed for us, and you got enough food, and we stayed there for a while. Then they came and they said, Hey, you cannot live in those barracks, we have to get you to the DP camp, the displaced person camp. And we were sent, my mother and I were sent to. Uh, Bad Reichenhall, that's in Bavaria, by the mountain. It's next door to where Hitler had his bunker, Berchtesgaden. We were there for quite a, a while, and there was a lot of black market going on. My mother would go to different camps. Sometimes she would buy something and sell. She was tremendously enterprising. And we stayed there for quite a few. They used to have an art school and a school, so I was going to school, I was also going to the art school. They tried to teach us those days. The women used to wear big corsets and big bras. And I'll tell you, since that time, I hate sewing. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but they used to teach you that. But they also taught you <clears throat> Hebrew a little bit and other subjects. But my mother felt that that wasn't enough. And she knew somebody in camp who used to be a teacher before and she had them and a couple of other teachers other things besides, you know, they taught us sciences and chemistry. She felt, hey, I lost it all during the Germans. I have to get something back. We stayed there for a while and you made friends and you became friends with people and there was a young fellow there, a young man with our group and he got papers to go to Australia And he always told me his parents were killed, but he had a brother and a sister-in-law, and they were there. And he says, when I go to Australia, guess what? Well, I'll send you papers. I said, all right, for you and for your mother. And that went for quite a while. My mother, in the meantime, uh, signed us up to go to the United States. You didn't go through a fence or anything. You had to wait for five years and hope that you will be accepted. A uh, notice came after a couple of years that, yes, we will be able to go to America, and they took us to another DP camp in Ashau. From there you would go to Bremen, Harvard, to America. At the same time, believe it or not, the paper for Australia came, but my mother said, no, we are going to go to America, so when Asheville finally the papers came, and we were Transported to uh, Bremenhaven and put on an army boat, General Muir, and we were coming to America. We was arrived in America. The trip took 10 days, and I was sick. You know, the first night they opened the, the kitchen and the canteen, and I said, this is great, f- terrific food. There was an American boat. You had anything and everything to eat. It was too good to be true. And when I was there, I started eating everything, but I got very sick. The boat was, you know, it was winter time. the boat was rocking, and I got terribly sick. But anyway, the trip took 10 days. At some point, I thought they should throw me in the ocean, because to be nauseous, it's horrible. I tell you, I never take cruises now, (laughs) because that was just too miserable. Okay. Anyway, I'll just tell you quickly, because I'll get off. So we went, and we arrived after 10 days in Boston Harbor. We were supposed to, we were signed, we, we didn't have any relatives, so we went through joint. The organization like joint. Anyway, they said, you know, you're supposed to go to Union City, our paper said. I didn't know where Union City was from another city, but they said we have no room in Union City, so they gave us papers and put us on a train and they took us to Omaha, Nebraska. We came to Omaha. The people in the Jewish Community Center were great. There were ladies who worked with refugees, and some lovely ladies took us, our whatever we accomplished finally, to save in the DP camp, some clothing, went to Union City, but we went to Omaha, and they took me to the store to buy something. And believe it or not, they enrolled me in high school because while I was in DP camp, I also had a teacher. My always believed in. To, uh, learning, and she taught me English. And as a young person, you pick up a language much faster. They put me in the senior in high school in Omaha, Nebraska, and the teacher even said, oh, I speak German, I'll be able to help you. I learned German at that point, too. Her German was worse than my English, so I couldn't understand the German, but anyway, I was there. After the end of school, I also got a fantastic job Because at night I used to go to business school, and I learned shorthand, Greg shorthand, and typing. And I got a fantastic job with Continental Grain. It was one of the largest grain companies in the world. It was owned by Belgian Jews who came here, and they had warehouses and elevators of grain all over the country and all over South America and other parts. And they put me in the office, and I worked for them. And they said, you know, Bella, we are going to enroll you in City College. And they sent me to City College, and I was able to manage. Somehow, with all the little, I was able to be in City College. So I used to, at night, go to City College. I used to work. They also found us an apartment. So I had an apartment. And it was really, life was great. But my mother felt, you know... Omaha is not for us, we should go to New York. And one day she decided, hey, we are going to go. So I told my bosses, and they were lovely people, and they said, you know, Bella, if you go to New York, we are going to arrange that you have a job with the company in New York. And when the Comptroller from New York came, I got, they introduced me to him, and I got a job in New York in the office. So my mother and I came to New York. There was a lady in Omaha who happened to have an apartment, believe it or not, on 86th and Western Avenue. I didn't know from Western to Eastern to any street, but we got a beautiful apartment, a studio on the 11th floor on 86th and Western Avenue. And we stayed there for a while. Then we had to return the apartment. And she says, whatever you can pay me, you'll pay me. And whenever you make a little more, you'll give me more money. That lasted for a short time because she came back and we had to find another apartment. I was working. My mother would go to school, to night school. There were different schools to study English. And I was able to get my mother a job in my office. And she was, they used to have like a coffee room. And my mother would just keep it nice and clean and prepare coffee. And when we used to have lunches, we used to go to that room and have our lunch. So I stayed there for, for a while. I made a lot of friends. There were little organizations that you had, and you know, and I made friends. And it was life became a little more normal. And then I also, you know, had good friends, and they introduced one of my girlfriends. Who happened to meet my husband at a party which I was invited to, but i didn't go because I went on another date, and she gave my future husband my number, and he called me and I met my husband on a blind date, so to speak, and believe it or not we we met in January of nineteen forty What was it nineteen fifty four 55. We got, I forgot already, that's not good. In 1955, January, and we were married in June 1955. And I have three lovely children now and a grandchild, but now I live in Wanaqi and Senior Center. My husband and I moved there, but unfortunately, my sweetheart passed away two and a half years ago. And we belong to Chabad there. We have a lovely Reverend Gorky and his charming wife Esty who are really sweethearts. You know, I didn't. I, I, when we went in New Jersey living, when we, after we married, we lived in Montville, New Jersey, we belonged to a temple for 40 odd years, but it was conservative, and I went whenever I wanted, nobody bothered. Calling, you came, you came, you didn't come, you didn't come, you paid your dues, and you were okay. But here... I always get a call from the rebbe, and he even now offered to even pick me up and drive me something. And I go to the different functions and things like this. And it's really, it, it said my husband isn't here, but my kids live in New Jersey. So it is great. And this is the story that, you know, believe me, every minute of life was like a whole lifetime living. But I was one thing, I was always very positive. I felt Life was worth living, and you have to do best you can, and you have to think positive. And it was very important because my mother always looked back at life, and she always, you know, lived with Auschwitz and with the, the loss. But of course, you know, when you lose a husband and a son and the whole family, I was young, so I was able to take it. But I want you to know the holidays when used to come, and people used to go, oh, I'm going here or that or my aunt or uncle's, I didn't have any. But anyway, that's the story of one story of the Holocaust. (laughs) Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings, and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.